We have had a lot of bad news over the past year and a half, right? At some point, it's going to be two years and maybe hopefully not more than that. Some of this news is obvious. For some of us, it's bad news in our work or our home lives, significant bad news. I know about things going on right now that are really bad news. And for all of us, looking at the news, social media, bad news after bad news, and it just keeps coming. Delta variant. What are we going to do with that? There's fights over everything. Pick your topic. I am really tired of the fighting. And then stories of abuse that just keep coming out. Crew this week. You might be aware of a story in our own denomination, the ACNA. Not our diocese, but a diocese just a few miles from here, involving a big church. I want you to know Jay plans to address this when he returns directly, if you've had questions about that, and I'm glad to answer your questions as well. I'm not going into this all today, but it's on my mind because, once again, the story of David and Bathsheba comes up. If you've been around a while, you know that I've preached this text before. In fact, this is the third lectionary cycle I've found myself scheduled for this day This first sermon of David Bathsheba six years ago was one of those watershed moments for me in my own preaching, so it's given this passage a special place in my heart. Three years ago, it was right in the middle of Me Too and Bill Hybels and all that stuff, just powerful. And today, it's clear to me that this text is just even more relevant than before. It hasn't gone away. But quite frankly, I am weary of preaching it. I'm weary. I'm weary of needing to preach it. I am weary of these stories. I'm weary of powerful people protecting themselves at the expense of people with less power. I am weary of feeling angry. I am weary. I need some good news. As the lectionary takes us once again back to the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, as we once again watch terrible stories unfolding in the news, today I ask this question of the text. Where is the good news here? Is there good news in the midst of all this gloom? There is. And his name is Jesus. Today we're looking a bit at a contrast in feasts. David's feast with Uriah that we read about in the Old Testament, and then Jesus' feast with the 5,000 in the Gospel. One is the epitome of toxic power, bad news. The other is its very antidote, good news himself. I want to pause here just to note, as you may have gathered, this sermon will touch on abuse, particularly abuse of power. It's important for us to remember there are people in our midst who are survivors of some of this stuff. So you do what you need to do today. Also, if you're experiencing abuse now, please reach out to me or someone you trust, okay? Jesus cares about it. He cares about you. And for parents, as they say sometimes on NPR, this sermon will acknowledge the existence of sex. I want to remind you of the background for our Old Testament passage. There's more of this in previous sermons. You can look them up, especially related to Bathsheba. David is making some wrong choices. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be out fighting 
Remember, that's what Israel wanted a king for, to fight their battles. He's not there. He's home. So one day after a siesta, sounds pretty nice, he gets up and he walks around on the roof, going nowhere, back and forth, back and forth, and he sees a woman. We're told two things about her first. She's tov in appearance, that word good, beautiful, and she's bathing to purify herself after her period. So the things emphasized about her are tov, goodness, and purity. In other words, Bathsheba is not the bad guy, okay? The text tells us this very clearly, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. David sees her. It could have been an accident. But then David makes a choice. He sends someone to ask about her. Now remember, David already had a bunch of wives and actually a poor track record when it comes to women. What is he thinking here? The messenger tells him the truth. She's Bathsheba, names her. This is her dad. This is her, wife, her husband, Uriah the Hittite, one of the people out risking his life for you. David knows. But he makes another choice. He sends men to take Bathsheba. She comes. Same word used when Uriah comes to David. And then when the prophet Nathan comes to David. And David gets what he wants and sends her away. That might have been the end of it. David might have thought, well, that wasn't my best moment, but no one will know. You know, aside from all the messengers and the house slaves who made this happen for me, no harm done. And then the message comes, I'm pregnant. Now what? And David makes another choice. Time for a cover-up. Man of God's got to appear righteous, after all. He summons Uriah back from the front. They'll handle it back over there. He does all he can to get Uriah to sleep with his wife and get credit for the pregnancy. But Uriah has too much integrity. A man outside of Israel, that's why they keep calling him the Hittite, has more righteousness than the king of Israel. David makes another choice. He orders Uriah to be killed, and it works. So by the time we get to chapter 11, a few verses later than where our text ends, Uriah's dead, Bathsheba's David's wife, their son is born, and no one seems the wiser. But the text tells us what David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Ra, the opposite of good, tov evil in the eyes of the Lord. It is a sickening story. David, this famous man after God's own heart who's supposed to rule with God's own character, turns out to be just like so many other people in power. Up until this chapter, a reader might have thought, maybe David's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one. He's on good good track. And here, it all comes crashing down, and we mourn. We wanted a hero, you see, and we still do. That is why it's so easy for us to try to justify David or minimize his sin, and so easy for us to do so with other beloved leaders in the church. Interpreters have done this for centuries, and they still do. Like David himself, sometimes we have a hard time naming sin as sin when it implicates someone we want to love, someone we do love. It just feels too hard. We mourn the loss of our heroes. And in that place of mourning, in steps Jesus. 
You see, we were never meant to place our hope in David. At his very best, David was only a faint echo of the Messiah who was to come. The Messiah who beckons to us, I am gentle and humble in heart. Sit, eat, be filled. Jesus brings good news to those destroyed by leaders like David. Let's look at a few contrasts in these stories. David uses people. Jesus cares for people. David's totally absorbed with his own desires here. He uses Bathsheba for his lust and then gets rid of her. He uses his servants and Joab to do his dirty work. He uses Uriah to try to cover up what he's done. In contrast, Jesus looks out at these crowds of people, and his first thought is, they must be hungry. How can we get them some food? David uses bodies. Jesus cares for bodies. All around us, people are using other people to meet their own needs, and we do that too sometimes. Jesus doesn't do that. And the people of the good news are not to do that either. And when we see it happening, we're right to name it as wrong. Jesus doesn't use people for his own ends. Jesus offers dignity and care to every image bearer. David orders and coerces. Jesus invites and releases. David's primary action in these chapters is sending. Do you notice how many times that word send occurs? He orders people around. He sends messengers. He sends for Bathsheba. He sends for Uriah. He sends Uriah back to Joab with his own death sentence. Send, send, send. Order, order, order. David has gotten used to power. And when he can't get what he wants through ordering people, he coerces. Uriah, good to see you. Go on home. It's fine. I give you permission. Here, drink a little more. You sure you don't want to go back home? Orders and coercion. That's temporal power for you. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus never does that. Jesus turns to his disciples and asks a question. What do you think? How are we going to get them food? His question invites the disciples to join him in ministry. And we know from other gospel accounts, he lets them brainstorm a bit. Some say, oh, send them home. They'll figure it out. Some say, it'll never work. I love that Andrew has an idea and doesn't know if it'll work, but speaks up anyway. Jesus invites them into his work, then releases them to the work of learning. No ordering and coercion there. David destroys through ingratitude. Jesus blesses ingratitude. Every time I study this passage, I'm struck by the role of ingratitude in David's choices. It's not the first sin you think of in this passage, but it becomes most clear in chapter 12 when the prophet Nathan comes and tells a brilliant parable, gets David on the hook. Got a cough. Hold on. Gets David on the hook and then says, you're the one. Now, when God talks to David, when Nathan gives him the message, God says, he doesn't say, you wanted sex. Bad, 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 bad. He says, you were ungrateful. I gave you all of this, and it wasn't enough for you. It led to all this, and it's going to really hurt now. 
That is really sobering for me. David's sinful abuse of power might seem very removed from us, something we read about, something other people do, but the sin of ingratitude, that gets closer to home. In contrast, at the Feast of Jesus, Jesus receives this tiny meal, freely offered, not seized. I got to think that boy's mom made the bread. Maybe his dad caught the fish. This tiny lunch. Jesus receives it, and he gives thanks. Five pita, two fish, holding them in his hands. Thank you, Father, for this gift. And then he gives, and gives, and gives, and gives, and gives, and they give, and they keep giving. And all those people, most of whom had probably never in their lives been able to eat as much as they wanted, they eat and are full. Out of gratitude. Blessed, broken, given. I have to think that those 12 baskets of leftovers were shared with neighbors, too. Hungry neighbors. What blessing out of Jesus' deep act of faith and gratitude for that small meal, which Leslie reminded me, it's right up there. Jesus blesses in gratitude. David destroys community. Jesus nourishes community. David's actions do not hurt just him. His feast ends up destroying a family, killing a baby, resulting in havoc and bloodshed for years and years and years in his own family. Our sins never hurt just us. Our sins, the ones known and the ones hidden, hurt those around us, and they hurt our community as well. I think about Church of the Resurrection right now in Wheaton, where some of this stuff is unfolding. That whole community is suffering because of the actions of a handful of people, and specifically the actions of one man in particular. Sin does that. But the Feast of Jesus is a feast that gathers and nourishes. My favorite commentator, Debbie Thomas, puts it this way. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, he does more than fill their stomachs. He encourages hungry, needy, weary people to sit down together, to notice and attend to one another, to take pleasure not only in the possibility of their own fullness, but in the fullness of the whole. The point is to enjoy abundance in community, to learn that in God's kingdom there's enough, not just enough for one, but for many. David's actions destroy community. Jesus' feast creates a community in that moment, a community fed by him. And finally, our final contrast, David abuses power. Jesus refuses power. By now you get the picture with David. He's acting according to the motto, kings will be kings. What happens in the palace stays in the palace. This is not just David making a few tiny mistakes. This is a pattern of what we would call now abuse of power. And the parable we're told by Nathan in chapter 12 makes that very clear. I'm glad that in the church we're becoming more familiar with these dynamics of power and abuse. 
Too often, abusive leaders have said, just like David says to Joab at the end of chapter 11, after Joab follows David's orders and Uriah gets killed and a bunch of other men do too, the body count adds up, and David says to Joab, don't let this be evil in your eyes. War is war. Don't let this be evil in your eyes. That's when the narrator tells us the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Woe to us when we excuse what the Lord names as evil. What greater contrast can there be between that, doing everything he can to preserve his power, and Jesus? The people are ready for Jesus to be their king, and they want to make him be their king. Jesus says, nope, no thank you. No earthly power for me, thanks. I come to bless, not to take, to save, not to destroy, to offer myself, not to use you. And that's why when Jesus shows up, we can believe him when he says, it is I. Don't be afraid. The good news in this story is that David is not our savior. Jesus is. So what do we do with this story, practically? Because we have so little control over the bad news in the world, other than tuning it out, which I probably should do more of. How do we bring true good news to these dark places, not just to feel better, but in ways that transform? I have three ideas for us today. First, We tell the truth about sin. Part of the mercy of God in this story is that God didn't allow David to get away with this stuff. We wouldn't have this story in our lectionary if he had. When sin comes to light, as painful as it is, that is actually good news. There's no healing without that. Sin brought into the light can be confessed and repented of and repaired. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it doesn't cover up the bad stuff. It tells complicated stories like this one we have about David. We do well to follow the Bible's lead in how we tell our stories. We are to tell the truth about sin, but not just the sin about, not just the sin of others. That's easy to do. Our sin too. When the prophet Nathan tells David the parable in chapter 12, about the rich man who exploits the poor man, David recognizes the sin and gets indignant. That's so wrong. That man deserves to die. It's easy for us to do that when we hear about other people's sins. But the truth is, so often, we are the ones, just like David. We do it too. If we're always pointing out the sins of others but excusing our own, well, Jesus has some words about planks and specks that come to mind. Naming sin as sin and evil as evil is actually part of bringing good news, especially to those who've been abused. But we can't stop there. We also need to tell the truth about Jesus, that he is not like these abusive men. We need to tell the truth about how he honored women, about his gentleness, his compassion and empathy and fire for what is right 
and how he never uses or abuses people for his own ends. And we need to not just tell it, but live it. Live it out on social media. What Jesus is seen through your words out there. Live it in your families, in your workplaces. Tell the truth about Jesus, the only hero worthy of our worship. And third, cultivate gratitude. We don't abuse what we're grateful for. Think about that. And we can cultivate gratitude no matter how much or how little we have. Gratitude for our things. Gratitude for the people right in front of us. Seeing them as made in the image of God, as worthy of dignity and honor and care. Gratitude for any position or we may have. Gifts from God for us to steward. Gratitude is part of truth-telling. Because we have hard things and we have good things in our lives. Both are true. Think for a second about your favorite movie. Think about your favorite parts, the highs, the lows. Now imagine that you cut out all the happy parts, all the funny parts, and left in all the sad and tragic parts. It'd be a different movie, wouldn't it? You see, gratitude doesn't erase the hard parts in our life or say they don't matter or try to minimize them. No. It just helps us recognize the true story, the full story. What has God already placed in our hands for our good and his glory? Whether that be five pitas and two fish or 12 baskets of leftovers, Let's feel the weight of those things in our hands and give thanks. I want to end with a note, especially for those who might have joined us today who've been abused, for those who feel broken or beaten down, for those who may have been betrayed by someone who should have taken care of you, for those who, like me, are weary of all the bad news. Jesus today says to you especially, sit, rest, eat, be filled. This is my body, broken for you. Do not be afraid. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.